Welcome to Rich Conversations. Today we'll chat with Remington Tonar about cities. This is a super interesting conversation, and I wish we actually had more time to discuss it. You can follow Remington at Remington Tonar. Let's begin. All right, so we have Rem Tonar here with us, and we've been thinking about cities, and we actually had a conversation like this probably like a month ago, and we were like, hey, we should start recording our conversations when we when we chat. So this is kind of like a, a second conversation on what we talked about with cities earlier, and in the meantime, I read the book Triumph of the City by uh, Edward Glazer. Glaser? Edward Glazer. Glaser, and then um, I'm about halfway through Jeffrey West's book, Scale. I had to return to the library, so then now I have to, I had to buy it on paperback. So I got, I got to pick that up. But very interesting books, and we both have lived in urban areas, cities, are basically our entire adult lives. And living in Chicago, one of the biggest things is since reading Triumph of the City, I now walk around the city differently and because i think the biggest the biggest point i think from this book is affordable housing yeah he talks a lot about affordable housing there and almost every book on urban living or urban policy is going to dwell at least for a period on affordable housing right because affordability is a big issue in cities and you know you you hear a lot of controversy around things like gentrification all of that is related to affordable housing right gentrification yeah. is only controversial because it drives up the prices in a neighborhood thereby driving out the previous residents of the neighborhood. If the neighborhood would stay affordable, you'd have very diverse and and heterogeneous, like not you know uh, non-homogeneous, very mixed and and dynamic neighborhoods, you know, rather than the homogeneity that gentrification often brings with it, um, which so many people decry, except for the landlords. They love it because they make a lot of money uh, either uh, in their ability to raise rent or sell their properties at a much higher higher multiple than they would have been able to otherwise. Uh, So yeah, affordable housing is big on the residential side, but also just affordability in commercial real estate as well, right? You need businesses, restaurants, restaurants, restaurant, the restaurant business has such thin margins to begin with. A lot of that is rent. The rent for a restaurant is very high because you have to cover your kitchen and you have to cover your front of house. Uh, and, and so there's a lot of, of spatial costs to owning a restaurant or any business, uh, any retail business. So, uh, you know, affordability is really important for dynamic neighborhoods, but there are no easy ways to ensure affordability um, without artificially manipulating markets, which then will always have um, kind of un unintentional outcome yeah. um, many of, of uh, many times, uh, which can be more negative than unaffordability reading this book the two cities that we live in houston and chicago get mentioned quite a bit and this book was written in 2010 so obviously 10 years happened and and things are a little different but i would say houston is still one of the most uh highly moved to area in the country and they also talk about new york city and paris two places chicago chicago is one of the fastest shrinking cities in the country Illinois is shrinking. Illinois is shrinking. Chicago is shrinking 
I mean, there are cities that are shrinking faster than Chicago, right? But not yeah. top five cities, right? Um, uh, all the other top five cities are either holding steady or growing. Uh, Chicago is the only one that's like sh- is in the top five that that's actively shrinking. Um, but you know, a lot of that's, you know, kind of people moving to the suburbs. Um, but then, you know, increasingly a lot of those people are just moving out of Illinois. Um, in particular to the Sunbelt areas into the Sunbelt, right? Where so, you have a lot of suburban sprawl. Right, right. Well, you know, and, and, and so I've lived in what four cities now, Milwaukee, Chicago, New York, and Houston, and uh, so that's three out of the top five uh, yeah. largest cities in the country. Interestingly, they say Houston is going to pass Chicago to be the third largest city in the country in the next, you know, five years or something. Uh, estimates vary, but um, that seems. Yeah, I can believe that. that you also like have like evident. this large geographical area. Yeah, that the yeah, the, the, yeah, that's right. The city of the city of Houston is also larger than some states. Uh, so that, that helps as well. Yeah. Um, it's like it's something like, I don't know, you could look it up, folks, but it's like 660 square miles or something uh, in area that Houston is. You can fit like all of Chicago, all of Seattle, all of St. Louis, all of New York City and like all of Boston in the square mileage of the city of Houston. You know, it's obscene. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, low, fair, like relatively low density to those other major cities. But what's interesting about the cities in Texas is that, um, it, Austin's about to enter the top 10. So, uh, Texas is now going to have four of the top 10 largest cities wow. in the country. So what do you, besides, besides weather, what do you contribute? Affordability. No, no, but this is, yeah. this is, this is, this, uh, is why this, is, this is why it's relevant, right? Because. Yeah land here because we have so darn much of it is highly affordable you can have a massive house with a big pool and you know as big of a yard as you want uh for you know the price of a studio in in manhattan so uh the affordability is is hugely beneficial um and yes that means that you have to drive a lot more because things get spread out um but even but but because they're spread out you can go downtown houston and get a really nice high-rise apartment with a balcony uh also very affordably because the demand for that particular unit is much lower because you know a good portion of the population wants to live you know in the neighborhoods with big yards and pools um so the diffusion of density uh reduces or smooths out demand over a larger geographical area which decreases the price um and, and so the affordability is absolutely the driver of growth in these cities now austin is a little more expensive um, but you know, uh, it's a little very, bit more trendy. It's yeah, it's like yeah, more cool trendy Texas city. Yeah. It's cool. It's younger, right? It's yeah. younger and, uh, you know, very, um, kind of, you know, has a little hipster vibe. Um, uh, some might, might call it a city of yuppies, but, uh, uh, you know, definitely known to be uh, a cooler, um, or more culturally adventurous, let's call it city. The, sure. the most culturally adventurous city, city, adventurous city in Texas, without a doubt. And um, uh, but but people are still moving there mainly because it offers a great combination of those cultural uh, experiences, yeah. but also affordability. Right. Um, and so the combination of those two things is what's catapulting Austin into the top 10. Talk about why you have lived in cities, why you love cities. Yeah. Well, cities have this ineffable magic um about them that is really uh driven by the tremendous amount of 
difference and diversity, dynamism and serendipity that they have to offer. In New York, you can discover something new and different and interesting and intriguing around every corner or with every person you talk to. And everybody you talk to has an interesting story uh, and interesting experiences that you can learn from that open up the world to you. Uh, every restaurant has the same. Every street has history. Uh, and, you know, th- there's just so much narrative uh, yeah. and mystique to being able to constantly discover something new, learn mm-hmm. something new, meet new interesting people um, yeah. that are that are different than the next, by and large. That goes away after a while. You, you know, there's a author, uh, Joan Didion, who wrote an essay about leaving New York that's very famous now. Um, Goodbye to all that, it's called. Or uh, I think originally it was titled Goodbye to the Emerald City as it appeared in the Saturday Post, um, I think it's in the 60s. But, uh, you know, she talks about how after a while there are no new faces in New York because even though you've, you're still meeting new people, um, they're the same X number of types of people. Mm-hmm. Uh, so not even New York is, is um, infallible in that regard. But that said, you can discover a lot more about people, places, and things in New York than you can other play, uh, in other cities, right, that are more homogenous, where every person kind of has the same background, kind of went yeah. to the same schools, kind of does the same thing, or work in the, works in the same industries, has the same yeah. interests, and, you know, ultimately, you know, isn't, isn't really worldly, right? One of my criticisms about the culture in Houston is because it's been so driven by the energy industry, the oil and gas industry, right? Mm-hmm. Everyone you meet is like, oh, yeah, I'm an oil field engineer. I went to Texas A&M. Uh, and I live in this neighborhood, right? And that's mm-hmm. like the, you know, that's like a good bulk of the professional population. Well, you know, yeah. w- w- what's what's the fun in that? You're not learning anything new. You're not meeting new people. It, you know, it's just clones of the same person. That's very frustrating. So when we talk about like creating the future and innovation and exchange of ideas, cities have been kind of a, a they've been the epicenter of a lot of these things. What happens then? say, post-COVID, when people are maybe spreading out a little bit more, then what happens and how do these ideas happen if everybody's not so close living together? Yeah, it's a, it's a, good, uh, it's a good question. I think one thing I would say is, uh, hopefully, the diffusion of that creative capacity will actually help small to mid-sized cities see a renaissance, right? Oh, like, Oklahoma City could use some of those folks. Omaha, Nebraska could use some of those folks, right? Yeah. Uh, Columbus, Ohio, well, they have OSU, they have o- uh, Ohio State uh, there, but you know, Cleveland could probably use some of those folks, you know, wherever. So a lot of the yeah. mid-continent, mid-America, um, middle market, second-tier cities hopefully will benefit by the diffusion of that uh, brain power. The other thing is that even though they're leaving places with like a high density of those folks um, – the the kind of downside of density is competition, right? Like you have yeah. more competition for your ideas because there's tr- a tremendous number of really creative and smart people all around you, right? So it's mm-hmm. harder to stand out in that environment. Um, whereas in an Oklahoma City, you might be the leading authority. Like Rich, you could probably be the leading authority in Oklahoma City on like Joseph Albers, right? Uh, having no like <laughs> art degree. <laughs> uh, Seriously, like, I, it's not, it's not even five. 
Yeah, I know. It's like, <laughs> but <laughs> so, but you know, but in Chicago or you know New York or L.A., right? It's like pff, you know you you you'll run into people with with you know masters of fine arts degrees, you know, on every block who you know who who are experts, like subject matter experts in these types of things, right? So, you know, there's, there's a tremendous there's a lot more competition and competition can be good. Right. It can drive people to uh, kind of perform better, learn more, reach higher. Um, and, you know, so competition does have its benefits. Um, competition of ideas in in kind of highly dense cities like New York. Uh, but I think, you know, uh, on the other hand, that prevents kind of more equitable human flourishing. You know that that can be had if if these if these people were allowed to really challenge themselves in other places. One of the big points in the book was transportation and uh, human capital and transportation. A lot of cities make the mistake of investing in buildings rather than people, and so the oh let's build this new building, let's build this new train that will go around the this city. Is a great and it, topic. It's like it's about people. People drive the world, not buildings. So yeah, absolutely. it's about like investment in people and then improving the transportation so that you do get more people involved. Yeah. So this is a this is one of my favorite topics of discussion. Um, you know, the the smart cities industry is huge right now and every city has smart city initiatives and they're trying to digitalize and digitize their cities and connect all of the traffic uh signals you know to real-time data you know to optimize traffic flow or you know put smart concrete into the highways to you know figure out flood patterns and and you know repair uh repair patterns all, all this kind of stuff right yeah. but the problem is the problem is what people forget is that smart cities aren't built by smart things they're built by smart people you know (laughs) to have a really a truly smart city you need smart empowered citizens right and i you know this um rich but uh for your listeners so i write for forbes on smart cities and infrastructure so i think about these particular topics a lot and have taken to task very publicly some of the organizations like Google subsidiary Sidewalk Labs for their blunders in this area. Sidewalk Labs is a consulting firm that is owned entirely by Google that was founded to help cities essentially digitalize and automate um, and become quote unquote smart cities. And, And they were doing a huge project, very public and got a lot of press project with the city of Toronto. And they published this, you know, thousand page report uh on on their plans for toronto right and people had a lot of problems of it because it with it because it was more about collecting data on people than it was about helping people and i did a Mm. just like a quick like keyword analysis of of the document of the report and the word citizen in the entire report is mentioned something like i can't remember the exact number but it was like two or three times okay that's it yeah the word autonomous vehicle or autonomous car or some derivation thereof was mentioned six or seven hundred times. Mm. Right. So it just shows you where their priorities were. They were they cared more about turning Toronto or this particular district. Into a Google friendly place. Yeah. into like a really cool tech forward yeah. neighborhood, but never really took into account. Uh, you know, how does this help people and what do the people want and what do the people need? Right. So there's a there's a very famous uh, 20th century urban theorist named Jane Jacobs. And oh, uh, I think, Jane. yeah, Jane. Yeah. And uh, well, uh, <laughs> 
uh, Glazer probably mentions her a number of times. Oh, a number of times. Okay, good, yeah. Uh, well, the Death and Life of Ameri- Great uh, the, American the Cities. De- yes, The Death and Life of Great American Cities by Jane Jacobs. Uh, Glazer talks about her. Richard Florida talks about her. Uh, pretty much anyone who who's in the urban theory or urban studies world will talk about Jane Jacobs at some point in anything they write because of how seminal she was. And, and she's really the um, kind of... Uh, mother of, of urban studies, if you will. And she actually pre- prevented Robert Moses, right? The big urban yeah. planner, Robert Moses from dropping a highway straight through the middle of Manhattan. So where Greenwich, uh, where, where Washington square park is in Greenwich village in Manhattan, that was going to be a highway. If Robert Moses had his, had his way and Jane Jacobs, like pretty much single handedly put the kibosh on that. Uh, but, but her big thing was to really understand a city and what it needs and make it better, you have to walk the streets. You got to yeah. hit the streets. You got to get out there and you got to like learn about the people who live in the cities, you know, mm-hmm. and, and it's less about like the buildings, the, the physical environment and the infrastructure of any city, like any network, because cities are just complex networks, right? They're complex systems that are made up of multiple individual agents and nodes that are interconnected through. And that's you know, where the book scale comes into play. It, it, exactly right. Per, boom. Talks exactly. about these and then you. Yep. Because, because get bigger cities, bigger. Yeah. exactly, because cities, right, operate like any other or most other complex network or complex system, right? And they obey certain laws that are intrinsic to nature about what happens to them at scale and the challenges and opportunities they encounter as they scale. Uh, and so if you want to understand like how to make a city better, you also have to understand physics and scale, et cetera, because all these things come into play. But uh, you know, the physical environment, the buildings, the roads, the infrastructure, that stuff's super important. Infrastructure and mobility are, are vital, right? Because it's the infrastructure that connects uh, people to things and people to people, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, by moving either people or goods or services from A to B, whether that's electricity, water, uh, human beings. So th- th- these things are extremely important. But your you know, high-speed train is not going to help a city if the entire city has an IQ of 50, you know, <laughs> yeah. you know, are you moving bodies or are you mo- moving humans? Right. And it's like, yeah. if you want to move humans, those humans have to have individual agency, feel empowered to be actors within their own city. Right. And to make decisions that will improve their own lives and the lives of those around them. Uh, and that takes more than just physical infrastructure. It takes social infrastructure, economic infrastructure, educational infrastructure. All mm-hmm. of these things need to be tied in with the physical infrastructure, right? Like we should learn where we live and, you know, socialize where we work and improve our lives economically where we, where, you know, uh, you know, as we are moving around a city, like all of these things need to be thought of as an interconnected system where every piece of the system impacts all the other parts to some degree or another. Uh, mm-hmm. And a lot of people don't look at it that way. They see cities as very linear, right? There's buildings going up and there's roads going across, right? Yeah. If you're mapping your city based on the buildings and the roads and not the movement of people, you're already making a mistake because Studies yeah. have shown, by, done by MIT and, and others, on London especially, there's a, a seminal study that was done, I think with Orange Telecom, which is a big uh, telco over there, on how people move in cities. And, it, you know, in, and, you know, there's the von Thunen standard model of how to arrange a city, which is co- uh, concentric circles, right, where it's like the business districts in the center, yeah. and then people live around that, and then there's like, you know, farms on the outside and all this stuff. Right. Well, like, like, that's actually not how people interact with 
cities, right? If you, you look at the actual data, it's very jagged. There's like, you know, hubs and nodes and then like branches and different kind of micro networks that like spin off out of those nodes. It's not linear. It's not concentric circles, right? It's, it's much more like, uh, it looks much more like a neural network in the brain. Uh, that, than it does, you know, some neat, uh, you know, tidy set of circles or, or grids that we might design. So we have to stop thinking of our cities as like these neatly laid out, highly planned um, kind of physical structures and start seeing them as, uh, you know, the, the complex systems and phenomena that they are, which takes a different set of tools to understand and improve. What do you think is a good way for people to better understand the cities that they live in or the cities that are closest to them and are kind of like the hub of the region? Yeah. Uh, well, this is, that's, you said region. Region's also like a trigger word in, in urban studies, right? Because there's this whole set of theories on regionalism and how, you know, maybe the, the future may be regional. Uh, you, if you think about all these outlying suburbs or even like kind of uh, rural areas that are on the outskirts of cities, right? You know, an hour, two hours outside of the yeah. city center. Uh, a lot of those neighborhoods, or not regions, areas, cities, towns, villages are struggling now, right? A lot of them are shrinking mm-hmm. and not economically flourishing but imagine if we could and this is where physical infrastructure does come into play imagine if we could connect the farmland the hinterlands right with the urban centers so that you could what is now a two-hour drive could be a 10 or 15 minute either um quadcopter flight or you know hyperloop uh trip right what if you could get from you know rural Delavan, whatever, Wisconsin to Milwaukee mm-hmm. or, you know, Chicago in like 10 minutes, 15 minutes. Right. Yeah, that's that's game changing because people might choose to congregate in cities for work and play, but live uh, where there's more land, you know, in, in a more yeah. leisurely, leisurely lifestyle. So the opportunities with regionalism and to connect, create interconnected regions and move people and ideas back and forth from these different physical, these different physical assets, right? Whether it be mm-hmm. countryside or, or suburbs or, or urban, uh, is a huge opportunity that I think we're going to need to exploit to unlock the next wave of urban economic growth in America. Um, so I, I think all of those areas around cities have a huge role to play we just have to figure out how they can play that role in an efficient fashion yeah that's something we talked about last time usually there was this talk of mega cities that's where everything's going is these big giant mega cities across the u.s and we talked about the well this was during COVID, and now what does that look like when it when maybe people decide to live out further and then we talked about instead of measuring in distance we should measure in time. Maybe elaborate on that idea. You kind of hinted at it at the last point you were making. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, what people are really trying to save isn't distance, it's time, right? Yeah. Um, like, why don't you, you know, go, uh, where would you go? Where would you want to go? I mean, why, you know, it's like if you're living on the north side of Chicago, let's say, let's say you go to Northwestern and you live in Evanston, Illinois. Mm-hmm. 
you know, why, why don't you go down to University of Chicago and Hyde Park more often, you know, and, and do like, you know, collaborate with students down there? Well, it's it's a hike. That's far. Yeah. You know, it's like yeah, you get on. The, I don't know what takes you down there. Red line, maybe like oh, however you get down there, like the 151 Express down Lakeshore or whatever. You have to whatever uh, you do, you have to like transfer a bunch of different times unless you have a car. And even that's like a half hour. Then you'll or more. hit traffic and that you yeah. know, traffic will be a nightmare. You get stuck on Lakeshore Drive or. Uh, so you know what, but it's not the distance, right? In fact, that's not yeah. really far. It's not that far. Hyde Park it's is not, not that far away from Evanston, right? But 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 time-wise, it is far, right? Same thing in New York. It's like New York is tiny geographically, tiny, 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 right? But you know if if the you know if the six breaks down or the four five express breaks down and you're trying to get from the Upper East Side, uh, you know, down to Union Square. Uh, forget about it. You know, you're taking a 30 minute walk or so, you know, so, but what, what you care about really is, is the time thing. That is what we need to solve for. We need to conquer time, not distance. Now, the easiest way or the really the only way we know to conquer time is to conquer distance, right? Because distance mm-hmm. often contributes to time, but so does traffic. Yeah. Uh, right. And, and so does um, kind of inadequate infrastructure, um, obstacles. If you have to go around something, that contributes to time, even if it doesn't add that much distance. So the, um, uh, you know, we, we need to figure out ways to conquer time. Yes, that can be done through conquering distance, but it can also done, be done through technology. And this is where technology does come into play. Like technology is important to help solve solving these problems because yeah. technology can take the same distance and accelerate the or reduce the amount of time it takes to travel that distance. Um, so technology absolutely has a role to play. But, you know, again, we need to make sure that we are uh, conquering, to- you know, the time challenge in a way that actually creates value for humans for people yeah rather than just like shortening travel time for the sake of shortening travel time right we need to make sure that the people who are shortening travel time for need their travel time shortened you know it's like a lot of cities like oh well where do the people live the people live here and we're going to make it easier for those people to get to like michigan avenue in chicago where Mm -hmm. all the shopping is right Okay, well, uh, you know, do do the the folks who are going down to Michigan Avenue to shop, uh, you know, at like Saks or you know wherever, uh, you know, do they really need, you know, that travel time? Is that travel time that valuable to them, you know, or yeah. could that travel time like fundamentally transform a lower income community by giving them the ability to get more places to work faster? Right. Yeah. Or even to get places where they could get new, get better jobs at all. They might not even be able to get right. to those places now. Right. That adds so much more value to those individuals and therefore to the city as a whole. If we focus on, you know, kind of solving those issues for those populations. But, you know, the first thing is always, you know, let's focus on what people see and people want, you know, a beautiful Michigan Avenue with with great transit right. options. Well, that doesn't yeah. really help most of Chicagoans. Yeah, Absolutely. A lot of people you talk to, they talk about how they would like the red line to extend further and, you know, the lack of transportation options in the areas. Yeah. You know? But the people who say that, I mean, like, think of this, there, you know, there's there's plenty of lower income underserved community neighborhoods in Chicago, right, that just wish they'd have a line at all. Yeah. You know, I mean, a lot like, of these lines too were, were developed years, years ago. And so if you're not naturally by those spots, then like. It's super hard to get around because then you have to own a car and then now it's more traffic and it's yeah. more time. Yep. It's more time. And, and then it's like because people want to be near the hubs or the stops, 
right? Now the real estate in those areas becomes more expensive, right? right? So now it's like this is happening in LA. LA Metro is going on a huge construction and development uh, kick, which is awesome. Uh, That city needs it. But if you look at what's happening everywhere where they're putting a new stop, condos, like high rise, you know, know, expensive condos are just popping up, right? Because everyone's going to want to live next to this new, you know, Metro stop. Okay, well, the, the people who really need that Metro stop can't afford yeah. those condos. So how do you how do you deal with that? How do you control Well, unfortunately, that? like a lot of this is political, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, people, whether you're a Democrat or Republican, let me tell you, it, it does you well to, you know, make sure that the, you know, like the, the college kids from DePaul, you know, can, can get downtown quickly and, and back. You know what I mean? It's like... Yeah. You know, it's it's just politically expedient to to you know care for the people that fund your campaign, um, the groups of people or the types of people that fund your campaign, um, and it's economically um, ten you know kind of un- untenable in some ways to want to put a you know metro line uh, or any type of public transit into certain neighborhoods, right? Because you know, those neighborhoods just might not have the ability to pay the fare or might not want to pay the fare. Right. So yeah. uh, or or, you know, you might have to lower the fare to get good ridership. And maybe there's concern that they won't treat the um, the infrastructure as well. And you'll end up spending a lot more in repair and cleaning and those sorts of things. Um, but those are all things that we can come up with solutions for creative solutions for what we can't do is we can't just give up on whole neighborhoods, you know, but these aren't easy issues. And they're not easy because anytime you try to initiate a change in a city because it's a complex system, it affects other parts of the system, right? Yeah. Um, and then, you know, and the government, you know, is frankly always behind. Look how long New York just got its Second Avenue subway line a few years ago. That, that thing has been in the works for like 70 years. <laughs> you know, it's like they, they came up with that. They wanted to put that in for a long time, but never had the political will to do so. Uh, and then, you know, they're extending other lines. But like you're always going to be behind because cities, what they do is they use historical data to try to predict future population shifts. Right. Okay. But you know, but and, and this is what a lot of people do to in prediction. They use historical data. But you know, there's an inherent but that was problem. A different story. That was a different time ago. Yeah, I know. That's the inherent problem of using historical data to predict uh, future events. You know, the the historical data absolutely, like in many cases, has n- absolutely nothing to do with 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 the future, right? I mean, if you just look at historical data, agnostic of events like COVID, for example, mm-hmm. uh, the historical data is going to tell a very different story than the future data, right? Yeah. And the historical data, you know, in especially with an event like COVID, is COVID isn't going to help you uh, predict much of anything. Uh, it's not going to be useful for prediction in most cases. So, uh, you know, we have to have, find better models of prediction. People are like, well, how do you do that? You know, all we have is historical data, but that's not all you have. And this is where they walk the streets thing and Jane Jacobs yeah. come to play. It's ethnography. You got to get out there and talk to people. You got to yeah. get your pulse. You know, you got to get the pulse. Got to get the uh, vibe. What's, the vibe of what's happening out there, what people are thinking, what their hopes and dreams are, how those hopes and dreams are changing, what they want to do, who they're talking with, right? I mean, like where they're spending their free time, where they want to shop, where they don't want to shop, right? Where they want to go to work, where they don't want to work. What are the employees at that person's work doing? Where do they go after work? Like, where do they hang out? Do they go right home? If they go right home, where are their kids? You know, it's like you have to ask the hard questions that are more qualitative yeah. than quantitative. And like the government is not equipped to do that, right? Uh, but like so the, those are the yeah, types the of things you can do to figure it out. Data. 
and history, right? Rather easy, than because it's easy because it's easy. Yeah. It's easy to you know data you can look at and think and feel like you have a command of everything that's going on from one graphic or data set, right? But that doesn't tell you why those things are happening or who the data points are, right? Or what they're going to do next, right? It, it tells you none of that, right? It's much harder to actually go and try to talk to the people. So this kind of bleeds into a conversation I had recently with someone. We were talking about local areas, say your your city ward, and how often is it the alderman decides this is what I want and then projects it onto the neighborhood or the ward and goes fight for it for city council for a way to just attain a resume for a higher position of politics rather than how often is it the actual people and community collectively coming together as like a coalition and saying this is what we believe in this is what we want and then your city council member should just execute what you want rather than the other way around yeah how often do you think that's like in in like a real republic yeah that's probably i mean i don't know it it, it depends from council person to council person but um you know the council people aldermen you know whatever the equivalent in in your city is uh, they have agendas. They're politicians. They're elected officials, right? This is why I think like we need to radically decentralize how decisions in neighborhoods are made. Uh, you know, it's the the community should get a say. Uh, you know about so what, what does that to look do. Like? Well, I mean, you know, it's like it's groups. It's community groups. Yeah. Um, in kind of more decentralized autonomous decision making, right? So, like if you you know if you're in a community and there's this like overrun lot. Uh, that, you know, is owned by a bunch of property developers that refuse to do anything and people do drug deals there and, and dump bodies there, where, you know, whatever it is. And the, the city won't do anything about it because, like, well, you know, it's private property, that sort of thing, yeah. you know. But but maybe it becomes a public nuisance and then the city can, like, you know, Im, um, kind of impose its its will and demand that the property developer do something with it to, to make sure it's not a public nuisance, right? Yeah. Well. Like the community really has no control over what that developer does or what happens to that land, right? Mm-hmm. Like the city has some influence, right? But yeah. like you know, the, if you live across the street, right, you have much less influence on what happens to that land than either the developer, or property owner that lives like you know in the rich neighborhood across town, or the yeah. politician that spends their time in city hall, right? So these people mm-hmm. that do not live in your neighborhood don't have to like look or deal with this dilapidated piece of land, have more control over what happens to it than you the person who lives across the street right you should have a say in what happens then maybe maybe you think because you've talked to all your neighbors mm-hmm. uh, like maybe you think it'd be great to like put a really simple park there for yeah. example right and it's like like why can't you just make that a park you know yeah uh you know but but like the people are disempowered you know the the power in a lot of decisions in cities rests either with the politicians or with the property owners power to the people yeah, like the people need uh, to have more of a say in it. And property yeah. owners, the private sector needs to recognize that. Look, look, if you you know if you're if you're on the the property owner side and you want to eventually either develop that land or sell that land, mm-hmm. that property will be much more valuable if you are helping to create a thriving neighborhood, yeah. right? If you, if your land is allowing it to turn into a ghetto, right? Like, yeah, you're not going to be able to do anything profitable with that property, duh. You know, so it's just like people need to get their head out of their ass and, you know, recognize that, you know, every decision affects, you know, the, the entire community yeah. and, and recognize that what's good for the community is good for them. Something I've been thinking about lately is 
So I've been living in the same apartment unit for seven years <laughs> in awesome. uh, the neighborhood of North Center. And I'm kind of having like all these reflections and, and memories and I'm getting a little uh, emotional because um, I'm going to move into a new apartment on uh, more the northeast side on in Uptown. Asia and Argyle is uh, kind of the area. So a lot of Vietnamese food right by the park. I'm living in a high rise instead, like an old high rise instead of like a, a walk up. So be, I'm just very curious how my experience of the city will now differ. And and all of a sudden it's like how it will also be reinvigorated by the people and new types of people I'm going to interact with and restaurants. And, and that's such a cool thing to me to be in a city and it's you can get all these different experiences in any area. Yeah, wouldn't it be cool if there was like a more kind of long-term Airbnb where you could spend like six months to a year in one apartment and then go to another and the property owner, their landlord wouldn't have to worry because there'd be someone else that would like come over and take over that lease, but for a very short period of time. But it, they're all part of the same platform or program where they're like cycling through different neighborhoods of a city. Like that'd be kind of cool. It's There's interesting. I don't know if I don't know if the that was that was like a big issue with Airbnb and um Well you're gonna talk about the laws, but this is another yeah. problem, right? It's like why do those laws exist? Like let people yeah. do what they want to do with their you know, it's like just like get rid of the law. Um, you know, property owners should recognize that this is actually a net benefit for them. They have people uh, come that wanna be Yeah, and the city should and the yeah. city should recognize that it's a net benefit for them yeah. as well. So what do you think about um in Chicago, the word gentrification is a very dirty word and you know, so you have a lot of these neighborhoods. I mean, gentrification is a dirty word everywhere. Yeah. But everything isn't the nature of life is change. And neighborhoods have always changed. Cities have always changed. People don't like change. And how do you maintain a culture and a sense of community when, you know, buildings are getting knocked down and, you know, generic buildings are going up and shutting down like family yeah. stores in the area, you know? Yeah, it, totally. Well, it, it's really tough. And, you know, optimally, I think you'd have a good mix of of all of those different elements. You know, you would have, you know, kind of young professionals living alongside someone whose family has lived in that neighborhood for, you know, two generations, three generations. Right. Right. And, and you know, maybe um, or, or maybe folks who would come over as immigrants. So, you know, optimally, I think you you want to a diversity of different types of people in your neighborhood. I think the economics just are such that, um, you know, it, it drives out the, the folks who were there first, you know, in, in my old neighborhood in Brooklyn, you used to see stuff like this. You probably won't be able to see this, but uh, where's my, you know, build community, build not, community condos. not condos. Yeah, yeah. Like just graffiti down the sidewalks. And, um, you know, there's, you know, like this one, like gentrification is the new colonialism. Oh, yeah. Uh, that that sounds like someone in Brooklyn would. Yeah, yeah. You'll, you, yeah. you'll like this one. This was another one that was real popular. Art for whom? For whom? Interesting. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, you know, but, but these are the, the questions that are always asked and should be asked mm -hmm. whenever a neighborhood is experiencing gentrification. You really can't stop gentrification, right? It's it's economics. Mm -hmm. Um but I think what what needs to happen is, and again, it goes back to like a physical infrastructure component, right? If you have more places that are easily accessible and interconnected, it will give people 
more options because you'll diffuse the population, mm-hmm. you know, across or uh, across a wider kind of swath of land, right? I mean, gentrification yeah. isn't isn't really a huge deal in Houston because everything's so cheap to begin with. I mean, yeah. it does happen in Houston, but it's not nearly as dramatic as it is in Chicago or New York. But I mean, Chicago and New York have limitations, intrinsic, yeah. topological, like physical limitations. Right. Uh, you can't you can't build east. You can't build east in Chicago, right? Right. You, you hit something. <laughs> yeah. And you hit you the water. Yeah, you can't build, you know, kind of southeast in New York. You hit something else, you know, the yeah. ocean, you know. So, you know, the the you know port cities are hugely successful because they're port cities because they're on water. Mm-hmm. Uh, but at the same time, it does limit the your ability to to develop kind of smoothly diffused cities, and so you get clumpiness. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you know if you don't have a, an intelligently and forward-looking designed public transit system, you get increased clumpiness and more clumpiness. And the clumpiness is is kind of you know those are the areas that you'll have you'll have affordability issues in. You know. Yeah. How do you smooth out the clumps, you know? And and it's not that yeah. you like want necessarily want to smooth out the clumps. You still want maybe hubs of activity, you know. So it's like you're the the dispersion of living like housing inventory might look different than the dispersion of like you know retail and shopping inventory and and like office inventory. So um, you know each of these needs to have a life of its own and can't be overplanned. Uh, you know, that said, you just have you gotta to let it happen more naturally. You got to let it happen naturally, but you still have to work to open up opportunities so that people have somewhere to go <laughs> after yeah. they've been driven out of, of their existing, you know, existing neighborhood. Um, and, and, and the other element is, is like, I, I don't believe in rent control. I think rent control has an insidious effect, which is, it just drives up prices overall because, you know, you, you, in New York, for example, there's like a million units on rent control, you know, there's something crazy like that, right? So I then, mean, that has a, you get that has a material impact. leaving Manhattan for Brooklyn and then gentrifying Brooklyn and people yeah, in Brooklyn. Yeah, because they can't afford and, because they yeah. can't afford to live in Manhattan because yeah. you've taken like millions of units off the market, which drives up the prices, supply and demand, right? And so New York <laughs> too, they mentioned in the book that a lot of it is, uh, you know, this is something I kind of changed. I've been like changing my mind because I love how all these different styles in the city in Chicago, you have these old styles and units and it's kind of romantic and, Oh, look at how old they are. And, but like say in New York, if everything is now preserved now, now there's less opportunity to build up and build, build new. So then that means that there's not going to be as much unit as many units. And then the cost of living goes up. Yep. Yeah. I mean, cities need to be, multi-dimensional you know they have to look up as much as they look out and down in the south people look out because in across horizontally because there's just a lot of horizontal land uh but uh but like you know places like houston need to take a thing or two from the north and start building more up the uh, but you know it's more expensive to build up it's much cheaper to build kind of condos you know, or houses, two-story houses, than it is to build a 50-story glass and steel high-rise. So, um, you know, the, the costs come into play. New York builds up because it has to. Houston right. doesn't build up because it doesn't have to, right? But, yeah. uh, you know, and you don't want, you know, you don't want, you know, a very small cluster of very tall buildings like that. You know, that's not good either, you know? Yeah. 
So again, like the, what the the magic of cities is their their diversity and dynamism and the ebb and flow and the tension and the push and pull. So the moment anyone says about a city, well, we can't have any of that. Well, that's wrong. You know, you need a little bit of everything. Yeah. Well, on that note, any uh, any more last words about about cities and their dynamic no i don't know i could talk about cities for a long time but uh, i'm glad you read triumph of the city scale is awesome to understand how like the complexity and growth of cities actually parallels many different systems in nature including the human brain and computer networks and uh animal life the biosphere etc so that's super cool um and uh but i mean jane jacobs jacobs death and life of, uh, of great american cities is a must read um, Josh Lerner, uh, professor at Harvard has a lot of good books. Richard Florida, um, also has a lot of great work on cities. You know, there's, uh, there's a lot of urbanists out there that, that are really Carlo Rotti, who's not really, uh, I guess he's into smart cities now. He's an MIT guy. Uh, but like all these people are really trying to think about cities through a different lens. Um, and, and fortunately many of them are much more anthropocentric or human centered, um, than, than say sidewalk labs, um and google have been uh and, and that's what we need right ultimately we can talk about building up building out uh walk-ups uh high rises uh infrastructure trains public transit we can talk about this stuff all day it's very interesting yeah. and it's very 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 important but none of it matters unless we first uh, uh unless we unless we attend to and take care of the people that these things are meant to serve and then build them and develop them in such a way where we can be sure that they will continue to serve people and and the interests of communities so we need to ensure that thoughtful intelligent people are able to communicate together and work collaboratively to ensure the future of a lot of our communities Yes, and we need, you know, transformation or a rethinking of how decisions in cities and in neighborhoods within those cities are made. Uh, and we need to do more work to empower people and involve people in ways that are deeper and more systemic than just town halls, right? The town hall is yeah. the answer for all the all these. Are, oh, we'll have a town hall. Yeah, well, yeah. okay. Just just listening to people yell at you for a while, you know, <laughs> is isn't that constructive, right? We need to we need yeah. to fundamentally rethink the structure of how decisions are made and how data and information are gathered. Uh, within cities to inform civic leaders on what decisions should be made, right? Uh, Qualitative be, and quantitative. Exactly. There needs to be more of that Jane Jacobs walking the streets. And if you start walking the streets, you start to see cities in a whole new way. Cities. Cities, man. If residents don't feel empowered, then they're not they're just going to let everything happen. Well, exactly, but it's it's like a vicious cycle, right? It's yeah. like if you don't think you have a voice, you're not going to you're not going to speak out, right? And then and then nothing no change happens. But I think the answer is, you know, you need leaders from um, you know, I guess Barack Obama style community organizers. You need leaders from from within the people to come forward with solutions that are pragmatic. I think one of the problems today is like the solutions like a lot of these civic activist groups come up with are like radical, you know, it's like, well, you can't, you can't do that. You know, you still have to work within like the, the system of laws <laughs> and, and like the economics that we have, you know what I mean? It's like, you can't like say, well, our neighborhood wants to start using only Bitcoin. <laughs> it's like, okay, man, like, it's like enough of this, you know, come up with like some real solutions. But I, I have a couple good ones. I think that like, you know, like the food, food deserts are a big problem. 
right, in, in lower income neighborhoods and cities. People can't get access to good food. And the cheap food that like Walmart, whoever's hawking out is like horrible. It's not good for you. So, uh, I, you know, I actually think that every neighborhood in major cities should have its own vertical farm that, you know, is kind of run by a PPP, a private public partnership. Uh, and as a full-time staff and is responsible for producing in a vertical farm, so highly controlled environment, enough produce uh, every season to feed, uh, you know, to like supply X amount to everyone in that neighborhood, right? And so you have these like micro kind of decentralized vertical urban farms that can grow a tremendous amount of produce because they're vertical farms, so they're highly optimized and efficient. And you can really solve food desert problems that way. And you have someone deliver it, maybe like the milkman, or maybe there's a little autonomous vehicle that like, you know, moves the, takes, takes, brings you your carrots or whatever. I don't know. But, you know, like stuff like that, I think decentralization is the answer where neighborhoods can be self-sufficient and neighborhoods can empower their own, you know, so the, the idea of the city may be too monolithic for its own good. I think we might need to think yeah, wow, smaller, that's even, that's not bigger, but smaller, you yeah. know? Interesting, but yeah, no cities is a great are a great topic. I, but I I do think the key to solving the problems in cities is not to think bigger, but to think smaller. Small. You know, it's kind of it's interesting. But uh, yeah, I, I think it's it's about hyperlocality. It's about decentralization. It's it's about empowering tribes, neighborhoods, groups, communities, and because uh, look. Globally, institutions are under fire. People don't like big go- – you know, yeah. nobody likes like these institutions, whether they're big corporations or governments. Like people are anti-institution. People want to click up, cluster up with like like minds. You know, they want to find their tribe and just like be, you know, yeah. and we should, we should enable people to do that. I agree. I love it. Well, thanks for, thanks for joining me, Ram. I appreciate it. Always glad to be here. Thanks for listening to Rich Conversations. Again, you can follow Remington – at Remington Tonar. Take some time today, or the next few days, to observe life around you like Jane Jacobs. Have an awesome day.